I plan to finish chapter 3 off, and so we'll begin by reading to the end of Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21 this morning. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they give glory, I'm sorry, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As a Christian first, before anything else, and as a Christian father of six kids that keep me hopping all the time, um, I have a chief concern in my life and in my heart. And I think that this concern even is shared by the Apostle Paul, who was a single man and a shepherd of a flock that he loved like children. And that is that my children, I, I want them to know Jesus more than basically anything else that I do in this life or participate in. That, that's my number one. I want them to know Jesus more than anything else. Uh, I want the world to know Jesus. I want you to grow in grace, and I want you to know Jesus. If anyone here doesn't yet know Jesus personally, that is a passion of my heart. But chiefly, it's my children. I want them to know Christ. And that should be the heart cry of any father or mother, parent. Philippians 3 is given to us by this shepherd, Paul, who is wanting to protect the flock and he wants them to be protected from people who would introduce false teaching or bad influences in the life of their walk with the Lord and one of the chief ways that I parent my children in terms of them knowing Jesus is by protecting them from influences that would be negative to their hearts. I want to protect and guard my kids from people who would turn their hearts away from Jesus. It's a big, big passion of my life. I think about who they spend time with, where they go, what they're doing, what, what are they looking at in the media, on cell phones or, or things like that. And I am very concerned for the state of their souls. I want to protect them. And a few Sundays from now, we're going to have Palm Sunday. And several of the people being baptized are children. And that is the heart cry of that service, is to watch young believers, whether young physically or aged, watching believers get baptized and proclaim Christ. Well, I want those believers to be protected. I mean, yes, we want to educate. Yeah, we want people to, to get the gospel right. But I want to also protect children spiritually and my own children from evil influences and there are some evil influences that we find in philippians that paul is protecting the church from if you turn back to philippians chapter one paul uh, begins by talking about believers who are christians allegedly and probably practically who were preaching the gospel clearly 
While Paul was in jail, they were out preaching the gospel freely on the street corners or in the synagogues. And he said that their motives, verse 15 and following, were for selfish ambition. And they were doing it out of pretense. They were doing it for their own glory. And they were doing it to the detriment of Paul saying, hey, that joker's in jail. And so there must be something wrong with him. But we're proclaiming Christ. And really, they were preaching out of jealousy. They didn't like Paul's influence, and so they wanted to take him down a peg or two as they preached. And Paul calls that out in this letter, saying, I'm fine with the gospel going out, but warning about those people who are dogging me while I'm in prison. Another group that he's calling for the church to be protected from is found in verse 28. They're called opponents. You have opponents in verse 27 and 28 give a context for standing firm together in spiritual unity. And you're going to have opponents, people who come in who want to divide up the church. And so be warned about these opponents. Now thirdly, we've just learned about some people that Paul very compassionately calls dogs in the church. I mean, you know, he's just being very straightforward with people um, regarding people who come in to the church who are giving a false gospel. This is where Paul uses the verbal flamethrower and calls a spade a spade and says, listen, we're not talking about just preachers who are dogging me. We're not talking about people who insinuate themselves in the church that you've got to be careful about who are divisive. We're talking about people who are out-and-out out false teachers who come along and give a Jesus-plus gospel. And anytime there's a Jesus-plus gospel, Paul is very strong and very clear and very straightforward about that. When he saw a little bit of Jesus-plus gospel in the Apostle Peter, where Peter was saying, look, I won't eat with those Gentiles who who are uncircumcised. In Galatians it says that what did, what did Peter, Paul do? He opposed Peter to his face. It's very severe, very strong warfare-like tactics. And so we've learned about how Paul is protective against those Judaizers, those false teachers. Well, here in Philippians chapter 3, we have verse 18, people that are called enemies of the cross of Christ. And I want to introduce this group as the most lethal and deadly group that can damage and hurt your souls or hurt your children's souls more than any other. You have, you know, preachers with bad motives. You have people who come in who are opponents, who are divisive, who are kind of out in the open that way. And then you have dogs, you have people who come into the church and introduce a false teaching that you kind of have to discern and watch out for. And then you have what I'm going to call in Philippians 3 verse 18, the category called nominal Christians. The word nominal, just so you understand where I'm coming from, is in name only Christians. So they're not real Christians, they're faking it. And they're claiming to be Christians, but they're living a life in complete contradiction to what they claim to be. It's just hypocrites. I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's people who are faking it. It's people who are wearing masks in the church, who claim Christ, and live for the world. They've got an appetite for the world. They love the world. They want to live for the world. And that, that is the most subversive, destructive kind of influence that can influence you or family and friends that you love. It's over against any other influence. And you've seen it in the church. It's people who, they wear a smile at church. They, they seem comfortable. They seem happy. They're part of church life. They're part of church community. And yet, 
in their life, they live, at, they live for the world. And they live to fill their passions with what the world has to offer. So their life is a very contradiction to the message that, of the gospel and the claim that they love Jesus. They say, I love Jesus, but really, they don't love him at all. They don't know him at all. And they love this world. I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will prompt you in your hearts to think about people that are like that as influences in your life or in your children's lives. Who are those nominal Christians? Because the text of Scripture all the way back to the early church is saying that there are many who are out there, many nominal Christians. There's many people that say, I love Jesus, but they really don't. And their influence and their acceptance in the church as this is just standard fair Christianity is a very subversive one for those who want to be cross-centered, Christ-honoring, on-fire Christians. Nominal Christians squelch passion for Christ. So let's look at this. And I want to look at this in a particular context. I, I am not here to condemn nominal Christians, and I'm not here to do anything that the Apostle Paul um, was not doing in Philippians 3. What he was doing is he was actually weeping over these people. This is not a condemnation message. This is a message of compassion. And Paul is not coming after nominal Christians. He's just trying to clarify that there are nominal Christians and that he's crying over them. And the fact that, uh, if you see this in verse 18, he says, I've often told you about these people. Look at the phrase, even with tears. And that phrase means even while crying. I'm writing this. Now, the word now is in the text, it's, it's noon in the Greek. Now, while crying, present active participle, while I have tear-stained cheeks, while I have a tear-stained manuscript, I'm telling you I have compassion for these people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. So you've got to understand the emotion of what Paul is doing here. He's not seeing these people as overtly trying to lead people astray. He's seeing these people like with the compassion of Jesus Christ where he looked out on the multitudes and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen, a mother hen does um, to her chest. That's the emotion of Paul just like the emotion of Christ. We dare not be dry-eyed Christians with a text like this. We don't want to be hard-hearted towards people having a critical spirit. We want people to be drawn into the warm relationship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is in essence, giving us the template for how to potentially change the course of a nominal Christian. I'm building the outline that way because of the tears of the Apostle Paul. It's not that we can necessarily change the course of a nominal Christian, but he is giving clear tracks to run on in terms of how to live the Christian life. And he models this, and so we have to follow Paul as he follows Christ. And hopefully, in our efforts to live for Christ, nominal Christians will be corrected, will be brought into the family of God genuinely. Do you have a heart? Let me just Ask this question, do you have a heart for the nominal Christian, the Christian in name only person? Do you have a heart that way? Because I'm telling you what, that is where the battle is waged. You ask anybody who is vested in Christian ministry and Christian discipleship making, 
Everything rises and falls on this category of Christian. You have a lot of people, once you get to know them, that are right on the edge of either being nominal in, in name only or genuinely on fire for Christ. And there is a definite dividing line between the two. I remember when I first came to Christ as a 17-year-old, I went to Christian college and my faith had not yet been tested and I was, I was following Christ and, and just beginning to, to kind of take steps in the Lord in terms of what it means to be passionate for Him. I had been a nominal Christian my whole life, my whole knowing life as, as a 7-year-old who had been baptized and brought up in a Christian home. I, I was a nominal Christian. I was in name only. And at 17, I went, oh, that's what it means to love God passionately. That's what it means to know Him in Scripture. And when I came to Christian college, there was a variety of options of people I could have spent time with. And I remember this person mentoring me early there at the school. He was older than me, and he saw the friendship choices I was making in that first semester. And he said, look, you're at a real crossroads. We were standing in the arena at Liberty University at the top steps, and it was after a worship service. He said, look, that's your crowd that you're spending time with. And it was a group over here. And he said, what about that crowd that, that is going into ministry and those people that love Christ and they wear it on their sleeves? Why aren't you spending time with them? You're spending time with them. Why why not them? And that, that was a, a course changer in my life because I went, oh, he's right. I, I don't want to be them. I want to be like them. And this is what Paul is doing here at the church at Philippi, for the church at Philippi. He's in Rome. He's writing to them. And verse 17 says, brothers, join in imitating me. Stop there. How do you change a nom nominal Christian? Well, you change the course of a nominal Christian by, as a Christian, you begin to imitate the right people. You need to be influenced or under the influence of Christ-centered people. And Paul's saying, hey, I volunteer first. I'm going to put myself out there. He's not having a superiority complex. He's not saying that he is the be-all, end-all, the paragon of all spiritual virtue. That's not Paul. Paul's in jail Paul's chained up and he's saying, listen, just if you need someone to follow, follow me. And he's saying, brothers, hey, you're, you're equals, just brothers, fellow brothers. It's, it's actually a word, uh, mimotai, it's sum mimotai, mimotai, which is together with me. Let's be followers of Christ. That's the idea. Follow me. Putting himself out there in vulnerability. And then he broadens this to others that you could follow. He says, and keep your eyes on what? Those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying, look, look, look out there. Take, take a, get a vantage point. Like in the arena, look down at the people you could follow and the people you should follow. Think about this. Get a perspective and follow the right crowd because guess what? You are who you spend the most time with. That does shape who you are and who you will become. Here's a question. Who do you call in a crisis? That's who you're following. At a heart level, the bottom drops out. Who'd you call? Who's on your dial? Who's in your recents category? Those are the ones you're following. Who buoys up your heart? That's the doctrine and the teaching that you follow. That's your Christianity. That's your mentor. 
It's where your heart goes, who you're drawn to, to follow the right people. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. Psalm 1 says, you know, don't walk, sit, or stand in the seat of, uh, in the position with mockers and scoffers. Don't spend time with the wrong crowd. Get under the right influences. And so Paul is saying, look, I'll be one of your influences. I can't thank the Lord enough for the significant others that he put in my life and you in your life, lifetime, where, you know, someone took you out for a Coke to drink or took you to play basketball and talked to you after the game and sat down with you and cared about you and asked you about the state of your soul. Can you thank God enough for people like that who got vulnerable enough to say, look, I'm not perfect, but will you just follow me? That's Christianity because guess what? Christianity is taught, but Christianity is caught. It is. It's caught. You watch it in a lifestyle. You watch it in terms of how someone, here's the word, walks. You see that? Walk. Verse 17, walk. According to the example, according to the mark that Paul had set, walk according to that. Don't walk, verse 18, as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Instead, walk in terms of the mark that Paul set. Paul set a mark. That, that word example is tupos. It's a type. It's a mark. It's a standard. And Paul is saying, look, I want to know Jesus, the fellowship of, the, of his sufferings. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And I want to be obedient even to the point of death, just like Christ on the cross. That's the standard. Follow people like that. If you want to be on fire for Christ, flood your life with a selective few that love Jesus for real. Don't follow the nominal crowd. The nominal crowd, call, uh, Paul is going to call out as not real or authentic Christians. And nominal Christians are pervasive. You have a lot of them. I was thinking how quickly, this will sound maybe silly to you, but Google is an incredible way to study um, the scripture in terms of finding references. You go, oh, you know, there was this one verse or this one word or this phrase, and I don't know where it is. You just plug that in and boom, it's often there. I mean, oh, the hours that God has given back to me in my life in terms of not having to study thesaurus and, and study these you know, massive, uh, what are they called, um, concordances. I mean, good grief. You know, we have it online now. But the reason it's online is because somehow our culture still respects the Scripture. It's, it's accessible publicly. It hasn't been blocked yet. But it also shows how nominal people are because our culture in general is not believing the Scripture. But it's there for us. So, First of all, to go back to the outline, you imitate Christ-centered people. Paul was Christ-centered. He, he admonished the church with tears. He loved this church with compassion. He wept for the lost. You want people who are not dry-eyed Christians, but praying, compassionate, genuine, soft-hearted believers. That's the influence you want and need in your life. In Acts chapter 20, it talks about how Paul, in humility and tears, for three years, night and day, admonished the church at Ephesus. You want people who are examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus that we talked about earlier in the weeks, and the apostle Paul, people who are committed. And then secondly, not only do you want Christians who weep, you want those who discern you want people who discern. You say, what's that? To discern means that you have biblical wisdom 
to apply to situations. You have the ability to read people and read circumstances and situations through the grid of Scripture. And you can assess where people are spiritually. Paul was doing that. It wasn't enough for Paul just to go with the flow and say, I'm going to take care of my own Christian business and not worry about what's going on in the church. Instead, he was discerning the spiritual condition of the flock. And in his discernment, he clarifies that there are a lot of people in the church, at this point in the early church, who were actually categorically enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He was discerning someone's allegiances. You want to be around people of discernment. And this is Paul exercising discernment, saying there are people who are enemies of the cross. These are the people that are opposite of whom we should imitate. Their basis of life is an allegiance to a world that's hostile to God. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. I mean, they're not teaching false doctrine, really. I mean, they're living out a doctrine contrary to Christ. But why is he being so harsh? Why call these people enemies of Christ? Aren't they coming to the community of Christ? I mean, why, why would you call them enemies? Well, Romans 5 is a place where Paul calls um, people out and says they were at enmity with God or enemies of God. Act, uh, Romans chapter 8, 17 is another place. Romans 1, 18, here's a verse that says that before you were saved, um, the wrath of God was upon you. You were under the wrath of God. What, what is this? Did you know that before you became a Christian, you were under the penalty of wrath, judgment? Did you know that you were going to eternal hell before you came to Christ? Well, you may have known that cerebrally or, or mentally, but you, don't, you, didn't, you didn't feel it. It didn't transform you. The wrath of God. What is this like to be an enemy of God? Well, a lot of people are enemies of God and they don't even know it. They're in a sad spiritual condition and they're completely unaware of that. It would be like walking into the doctor's office and some of you have experienced this, so I'm not saying this lightly, but it's finding out that you have a disease that you had no idea that you had, whether it's cancer, whether it's terminal, or whether it's just something that now you have to live with that now is the new normal of your physical state. You have to eat differently. You have to act differently. You have to do things differently because of what a doctor told you, but you're going, you're sitting in the doctor's office and you're going, I feel fine. I feel fine. Why are you telling me this? And they took a blood test and they're going, we're telling you this because under the analysis of, of the microscope and of, of a series of tests and, and how we've seen other people with this condition, this is what's going to happen to you. You have, you know, a few years to live or six months to live or you now have to take this drug or undergo this therapy. I feel fine. No, well, you may feel fine right now, but there is a condition that you need to become aware of. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, you might think that you're fine as a nominal Christian, but really you are at enmity with God. You're at loggerheads with the creator. You're not fine. Things are not okay. 
I mean, culturally, do you see where it's going, where you have these laws where all of a sudden, you know, homosexual marriage is being affirmed more and more and more, and this is going to be just pervasive where it's as if the church has to react to the world and say, oh, yes, we can say this and that, and the world is saying it's foolish for you to talk, you know, evil about um, homosexual marriage or say that that's sin to be a homosexual. Well, we, the Bible says we're to be compassionate toward all people, no matter what sin patterns they're involved in. But the Bible is very clear, and so is general revelation, by the way, in terms of masculinity and femininity, that, that homosexual gay marriage is not, is not normal. It, it doesn't work. It's not right. It doesn't fit in the plan of God to procreate. It's, it's just odd. It's, it should be bizarre to our culture. It should be different. But guess what? For our culture, it's becoming more and more clouded in its judgment to say, no, this is normal. This is where things are going. So church, you need to catch up to where our culture is going. And I say, the word of God says, no, no. We think in terms of the way scripture clarifies for us to think. We have discernment. And people who are at enmity with God, they, they sort of muddy the waters in terms of what the gospel says. And they say, no, it's, you know, it might be a narrow gospel for you, but other people are going to heaven. What do you think? You think it's only through Christ? It needs to be a wider thing. And no, the scripture says there's only one way to heaven. And the cross gives accountability to people. It's not just whether or not you know it up here as to whether you are a follower of Christ. It's actually where you are affected by the cross. You see the humility of Christ and you say, you know what? He dove in the deep end of the pool and I'm diving in after him. He, he humbled himself and he's called me to deny myself, lose myself and follow Christ. That's normal Christianity. That's the accountability of the cross where you give for Christ and you become vulnerable for the sake of Christ. That's Christianity. That's the joy of Christianity. And so your allegiances can't be the world. Your allegiance has to be for Christ. Well, he also is discerning these nominal Christians as having a doomed destiny. Look at verse 19. He's discerning their destiny. Their end is destruction. What does that mean? It means that if someone is a nominal Christian and does not repent and genuinely believe in Christ, they're going to hell. I mean, destruction throughout the scripture talks about eternal hell, the lake of fire, the place where the worm doesn't die. Why doesn't the worm die? The worm is a picture of something that's eating someone's flesh for all of eternity. And the worm doesn't die because it's constantly consuming the flesh of people who are suffering forever. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but if you were to look over at Revelation, actually just turn there quickly, Revelation um, 19 through 22, the last four chapters of Revelation. Um, these days, a lot of people are confusing and throwing the idea of eternal judgment and eternal hell out. They don't want the accountability of the cross I believe, but they're forgetting the fact that you can't have Revelation 21 and 22, eternal heaven, without also reckoning with Revelation 19 and 20, which talks about eternal judgment. You can't have one without the other. 
Revelation 19, 11 through 20 and 21 talks about Jesus coming back and slaying the nations. It's a bloody battle where Jesus wins and he destroys his enemies with the two-edged sword. And then verse 20 talks about the beast was captured and in it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And then later on in Revelation 20, it talks about the devil who had deceived, verse 10, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. That's the picture of hell. It's an eternal dimension. Well, in Revelation 20, as it follows, it talks about the great white throne judgment. And if you connect that to John 5, where Jesus is talking about that judgment, it's the picture of people who are receiving the resurrection of life, where their names are found in the Lamb's book of life, and they are resurrected eternally to enjoy heaven forever, Revelation 21 and 22. And that contrasted with those who are going to be raised for the resurrection of death, which is called the second death, where you are tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever. That's the picture here. Verse 14 says, In death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is tied to the resurrection of death. Verse 15, And anyone's name, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. Look at this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now before you move through these categories and just assign them to Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson, let's just open up the categories for a minute. Anybody who has coveted without repenting, that's being an idolater. idolater. Anyone who has lied or been sexually immoral without repenting, that's in heart or action or both. This is what the scripture is talking about. It says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Second death meaning the resurrection of the dead, those who are not alive eternally, but those who are damned eternally there with the devil and his angels in the same lake of fire. By contrast, Revelation 21, verse 4, you have eternal heaven. What happens there? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away no more death no more dying no more suffering no more sicknesses no more sickness and no more demons that's heaven and that's forever so you can't have it one way or the other you have to have both revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 both eternal realities this is what paul is warning the church to consider that to be a nominal Christian is actually to have spiritual cancer, to be enemies of the cross of Christ, whether you know it or not, and you're in a trajectory that is headed towards destruction. And then Paul goes on to discern not only their destiny, but their idolatry. 
He's discerning the idols. Look at this. Their God, lowercase g, is their belly. Listen, idolatry is not something that just tribe, tribal worship falls into. This is not just animism or creating things out of wood and stone that people physically bow down to. Idolatry isn't something that we just find in the ancient world of the Greco-Roman culture or mythological gods. Idolatry is the sin of being covetous. Anytime you ever have lived for creature comforts or the world, you're falling into idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. Nathan mentioned Colossians earlier. Anyway, Colossians 3. This is, this is idolatry. Anyone who's coveting is an idolater. What broke the Apostle Paul of his Phariseeism was, was he was looking through the law of God, Romans chapter 7, and he came to the place where he said, I, I thought I had the law licked. I thought I had it nailed, and then I came to, thou shalt not covet. And I applied that to my heart, and I realized I was undone, and I had blown all of the law. That's when you know that you can't be righteous in your own strength because your heart is exposed as an idolater. It's where you're trying to bow down to what you think will satisfy you in this lifetime. That's why 1 John chapter 5, it ends that beautiful letter in the New Testament, very applicable, and says, look, be warned of idols. Beware of idols. What is he talking about? Beware of this sin of coveting. Wanting something so bad you're willing to sin to get it. It's grabbing for things that you think will satisfy you instead of Jesus. And the most horrible counseling room experiences I've ever had are when people begin to, to answer this question. How did it get so bad in your life where you would do that? And I mean, I've heard some pretty horrible things. You know, and it, it's just as simple as almost like a, a drug addict who ends up on, you know, heroin or dropping acid, crack cocaine. How did they get there? Well, they, they started with, you know, a softer drug or a prescription drug or marijuana, which is a lot of our discussion in our culture today. You know, and that, you know, it didn't satisfy. I need to go farther and farther and farther and farther, right? And the more that I needed more it caused me to do more and experience more and there's a lot of people who do that in immorality and and are doing things that they wouldn't have imagined doing but their idolatry led them down that path and that's what he's saying their god is their belly and they glory in their shame what's he talking about here well now he's discerning the nominal christian's goal the nominal christian has the goal to be on display, front and center. And the idea of glorying in your shame is different. It's counter to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even down to eating and drinking. Uh, when we eat and drink at our household, we don't have a family dinner. We have a cafeteria scene. And it's, it's wild. And it's amazing to think that that could be to the glory of God. But anyway, that's just for another discussion altogether. Food flies, and the dog eats well, stuff that drops on the floor. However, listen, here's the thing. People in our culture want to make sin a joke. They do. Whether it's, you know, agendas that I've mentioned already, whether it's just, just mocking God outrightly or anything, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, getting away with something. I mean, it's, it's mocking God 
and it's glorying in shameful things. Have you ever noticed that most of the comedy in the media is ultimately that joke? You know, it's laughing at things that hurt the heart of God. And the allurement is to draw people into those kinds of mockeries. So it's glorying in shame. Next one, Paul discerns someone's convictions or the nominal Christian's convictions, or you could insert the word values. A nominal Christian has a worldly value system. It's been defined by the world and with minds set on earthly things. Now again, these are five descriptors of the kind of person that are lethal to your spiritual life or to your children's spiritual lives or to your friends' spiritual lives. When you see these influences of people who say, I'm a Christian, I love Christ, but they live for the world and they have a mindset that is informed, educated, and locked on what the world loves, watch out. That's what Paul is doing. You want to imitate a guy like Paul who sees through our culture, who sees through the charade of people who claim Christ but have a worldly value system. You think of 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul was saying, you know, I'm getting ready to die. It's his last will and testament. He mentions two people there in particular. One is John Mark. Do you remember him? He was the guy that was uh, teamed up with Paul and Barnabas on their early mission trip journeys. And um, in that first missionary journey, John Mark, something happened. Something went wrong where he was not wanting to endure. He was not wanting to suffer. He was not wanting to put himself out there. And so um, he left Paul and Barnabas. Well, second time around, Paul and Barnabas wanted to uh, team up again. But Barnabas wanted John Mark and said, look, he's, he's got it right. He, you know, he's figured it out. Uh, I think he was probably a relative to Barnabas. So he's saying, look, let's, let's take him with us. Paul's going, no deal. I'm not going with him. He's not been faithful. I don't want a repeat of what just happened to us. And so Paul and Barnabas split over that. And Paul teamed up with Silas. And Barnabas went with John Mark. Well, things happened, and ministry happened, and people got saved, and, and the church went on, and the church grew anyway. And at the end of Paul's life, where he was going to be executed, he said something very precious regarding John Mark. Remember this? 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, look, and everybody's left me, but verse 11, Luke alone is with me. And he says, get Mark saying, Timothy, you're my guy. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Why did Paul do that? Well, was Paul eating some spiritual crow at that point? Maybe Paul missed it. Doesn't matter. Paul ultimately knew that Mark had proved himself to be faithful. So you say, hey, welcome him back. I want him with me. But by contrast, you have Demas, verse 10. Now, what happened to Demas? Demas, we don't know much about him except he was from Thessalonica. And in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is saying, look, Demas is a, a fellow brother in Christ and he greets you. So he's affirming Demas there in Colossians 4. In Philemon, verse 24, he calls Demas a fellow worker in the gospel. So Demas had stood the test of time to a point, but then he was exposed as not being the real thing. Verse 10 of 2 Timothy 4, very sad for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you see that phrase? In love with this present world. That's the danger. 
We're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to enjoy the world. We're supposed to see this as God's world. We're supposed to enjoy the creation of this world. I believe we're supposed to enjoy the image of God that's manifested even through the technology and the sophistication and the art and science and history of this world. But you can't love the sin of this world. And you can't love the false ideologies, the false teachings of this world. You can't love the creature comforts in an idolatrous way in this world because it will threaten and jeopardize your spiritual growth and progress. As a genuine believer, it'll just sideline you. As someone who hasn't yet fully given your heart to Christ, it will divert you and it'll be like Satan snatching the seed of the word of God from your heart where you will be led astray. Well, let's just launch into these last couple verses. Very significant ones. I may have to start back with these when um, I preach again. But listen, it's not enough just to follow the Apostle Paul. Paul's saying, imitate me. He's saying, follow me. It's not enough for you to follow on-fire Christians. Verses 20 and 21 call you yourself to be a Christ-centered, cross-centered on fire believer if you want to affect and influence nominal christianity you got to stand out as the real thing here listen to me on this this is very important it's not enough just to go with the flow it's not enough even just to attach yourself to someone and say okay i'm a follower of him so i'm good you have to be someone who becomes followable do you hear me you have to be, you have to want that for your life. I want, you have to say, I want to make disciples. I want my life to stand out enough for someone to say, I want what he has. He has treasure. He has peace. He has relationship with the Lord, and I want what he has. It stands out in the way that he walks. You can tell a lot about by a person, a lot about a person by the way that they physically walk, by the way they carry themselves, right? Well, you want your spiritual life to become a, an example, uh, a, something that, that people see and they go, you know what, I want my life in about two or three years to look like that person's life. I want that person's walk. And that's what Paul is promoting here in these last verses. Because by contrast to the nominal Christian, you have the word, but. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's calling for a Christ-centeredness where you are living for a different world. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship means that you should want to be somewhere else. And that's how I've outlined this. You have to be a Christ-centered person and you have to push. I I deliberately put that in here. you got to push to want somewhere else. I didn't wake up this morning going, I want heaven, right? I woke up this morning going... I don't want to get up this morning. You know, I woke up this morning going, I want more sleep. I woke up this morning going, I want a cup of coffee. None of that's wrong necessarily. But you're not supposed to, as a believer, you're not supposed to stay there. At some point in your day, in your spiritual walk, you're supposed to push yourself to go, I want a different place. I'm not satisfied with this world. It's not enough for my soul. It's not going to feed me to satisfaction. I want heaven. I want holiness. I want Jesus. I want a different place. I want a new heavens and a new earth here. 
And you do that by saying my identity, my citizenship, my government status is somewhere else. Now, I'm going to use this analogy, and it's a little bit funny, but I can get away with it here in Alaska, and you'll get it. Um, I think people that are most happy in Alaska are people who, yes, we understand our citizenship as the United States of America, and I don't undo that or disrespect that in any way whatsoever, but there are people who go, you know what, I'm an American, but I'm an Alaskan, right? And it's that, that dual citizenship effect where it's like, you know, I had to go outside. I had to leave. You know, I mean, that's the mindset of an Alaskan that's a happy Alaskan. They love it here. We had an emergency thing uh, this weekend. Some of you who are Judy Crotts Facebook followers, you know, none of you want to follow my Facebook because I don't post, but she posts like every 30 seconds. All that to say, um, she posted about this. But, but Carson, one of our twins, um, you know, he's asthmatic. He's not charismatic, but he's asthmatic. And, you know, sometimes he's charismatic. All that to say, he, uh, he started to go, go down on Friday night where he was wheezing. And, you know, we've got medicine. We've got technique. We've got steam. We've got taking him out to the cold. We're doing all these things to get him to stop. But he had a barking cough and the asthma attack, and it was getting, you know, to be a freak show. All of a sudden, you know, it's like, wow, it's 12 in the morning, and I just want this thing to be done. But, you know, Judy, as the mama, knew what to do. And she, you know, I'm like, let's pack up the truck, and she's calling 911. She knew it was time for him to get medical, medical attention, like, now. And so, you know, five minutes later, five um, men, at the, you know, they were men. They could have been men and women, but men showed up, and they're standing in my, you know, foyer area around Carson with him hooked up to oxygen and monitors. You know, the, the firemen from, uh, from Station 5 were on the scene. Riley woke up, putting sleep out of her eyes, thinking that some sort of church leadership meeting had ensued at 12 in the morning. Why are those men down there? And she goes back to sleep. And I'm going, we need her, you know? Come on, be the 13-year-old. All that to say, uh, you know, eventually we were at the hospital at Providence, and Carson was fine. Um, He needed, you know, treatments and IVs and stuff, but, you know, he just, you know, toughed through it, and three hours later he was home in bed. But what was unique to me, and this is really the point of the illustration, is that this lady came in, who is the lady with the, you know, the rolling kiosk that signs you up to pay bills. Um, she comes in with a smiling face, and we just begin to talk about where she's from. She's from Pennsylvania and different places on the East Coast. But what she said made an impression on me. She said, I love Alaska so much, and I've been here a long time. And she said, I went back east for 86 days and came back, and that was all I could do. I went home, but it just wasn't good enough for me, and I had to get back to Alaska, and I'm here. And I loved that spirit, that heart, that, that smile of joy to love it here, but that's how you got to be as a Christian. you got to wake up and say, I want somewhere else, and I not only want to be somewhere else, I want someone else. Look at verse 20 again. For from it we await a Savior. Who's the Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ? We believe it, but listen, you got to push to want someone today. you got to say, I want Jesus more than anything else today. And you got to do that tomorrow. That's, that's the Christianity that people will want to follow. I want to be somewhere else, and I want somewhere else. Now we live our life, and we do our responsibilities, but you got to live in the light of heaven and the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapters, chapter 21 is where John, who wrote the book of Revelation, says, and he's quoting Jesus, 
I come quickly. Three times in a row in that chapter, I'm coming quickly. And John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. I want Jesus to come back today. That's Christianity that's on fire and should be normal in terms of our mindset. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And the same Jesus that went to an actual place in heaven will actually return. And we need to want and hope that it's today. Lastly, we need to push to want something else. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like this glorious body? We live in a culture, and I said this, uh, well, I haven't said it to the second hour yet, so it'll be fresh for you. <laughs> uh, we live in a culture that's death-defying. It is historic, in the history of mankind, it is the most death-defying culture that's ever been. And that means that people don't want to die. They're trying to not die. They're trying to medicate not to die. They're trying to cosmetically, um, surgically make themselves look like they're not going to die. Um, we're death defiers. Now, I'm not against the sanctity of human life, whether babies in the womb or elderly people. Don't hear me wrong on this. I love life. I love living, right? I'm not, you know, a masochistic person. I'm not talking that way. But I am talking in terms of a culture that wants to ignore eternity and try to be self-satisfied here and now. Instead, we should wake up and push to want heaven, to want someone who is our Lord Jesus Christ, and to want this world and our bodies to be transformed in the resurrection. Why is Jesus going to transform you into his likeness? Look at this. Transform. It's the word schematic for you engineer types. It's, it's where we get the word schematic. We get a new schematic. We're transformed. Our lowly body, of it's humbled, humiliated body. We understand as believers we're sinners. Things aren't right. We want things to be set right physically and spiritually in our bodies. To be like his glorious body. To be like Jesus Christ. We want that. Why? Because Christ's power is going to be on display because Christ is God and he is the world universal dominator. He is the king and lord of everything. And we are wanting desperately to fit in and be part of that for all of eternity. If you live in that mindset, realizing that Christ is God he is Lord over everything, and we need to come into that submissive posture. And we're wanting to be fit for heaven and eternity in that way. And that, that, if that controls the way you think, live, feel, decide, choose, um, live your life, the way you walk, then people will go, you know what, I want to be imitating that person. And then those imitators, guess what? They will soon want to be imitated. And this is how the church grows and it's how it's how christians are protected from nominal christianity which is the most dangerous form of false christianity against our souls and against our children's souls so let's be appropriately protective let's be imitators and let's be imitatable as people who weep and love the world and love christ more than anything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For